Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the Jayberg Wilk Learning Series for 2018-2019. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybaitmadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. a little bit uh, in this, as before we head into this, by saying that I, I uh, so you know where I'm coming from, I, I was really very much in the ivory tower uh, of Jewish life for a long time. I mean, I think anyone who goes into rabbinical school has that privilege of sort of sequestering, cloistering themselves away and just studying. And then, um, and then I continued that for a long time. I really sort of embraced this value of like, Talmud Torah, of Torah study, and I, I managed to craft this whole life by the time I was at Keva where I could just sort of think and read and learn and teach with all of my time, and that's an incredible privilege, and, uh, and most, even most rabbis don't get to do that. Um, so I was very happy in that life until I hit a certain point, and I started to feel like something was missing. Like, I, I had a lot going on from the neck up, but that my Judaism wasn't really being lived out so much in the world. I wasn't really doing much to affect people's lives, except in their minds. And that, that's, 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 that's fine, too, but I, I wanted somehow a more holistic um, experience. And um, it reminds me a little bit, there's a story about the, one of the great minds in Judaism, I am not one of the great minds in Judaism, but one of the great minds in Judaism is the, the Gaon of Vilna, the, Vil, the genius of, of Lithuania, Vilna, Lithuania. Um, basically, just also, like more than me, sequestered himself um, for most of his days in his study and just dove into the books and produced some of the greatest kind of commentary that, we, that we've seen since the Middle Ages. Um, and the story goes, and like a lot of these stories, who knows how, how true it is, but the story goes that the Gon of Vilna, the, the, the genius of Vilna, was, um, was one sort of Rosh Hashanah or Yom Kippur um, wanting to do some personal self-work. And so he asked, uh, because he was the, the ultimate rabbi, he asked one of the other uh, famous rabbis of the age to come to him and give him some, some put, like, what do I need to work on? And he asked that, the, as I heard the story, the Magadiv Dubno. And the Magadiv Dubno is sort of a famous preacher, would go around and kind of like, you know, pr- you know, tell people how to like get themselves together and live good lives. And he asked the Magadiv Dubno to give him some, some, some tochacha, some feedback. And the Magadiv said, oh, I can't, you're the Vilna Gon, I can't, you know. So he said, no, no, please, I need to, I need to know, what I'm, you know what I need to work on. He said, okay, well, you know, you are unquestionably serving your creator, you're unquestionably a righteous man, but you are a righteous man in your study, in your little library. And 
you aren't doing anything out in the world. You know, you're not really. And apparently, um, so that's, that's sort of like the dilemma I was sort of, apparently the Vilna Goen, he, his response was that he tore his clothes as a way of saying he's in mourning for that. But he said, I'm still going to stay in my study because that's, <laughs> that's where I belong. So that was not my response. But again, I don't have the mind he does. So it's probably not best spent uh, alone in the library. But, um, but what I did was I started to kind of look around for a place where I could, you know, could do a little bit more active real world Judaism. And I was very fortunate to find maybe the best place for that in the world, which is this um, non-synagogue, this spiritual community that I work in now called Ikar. And, um, and it is a community uh, that is known for, above all, its commitment to social justice um, and activism. And, and that, um, that, that spirit is led by our really great rabbi, Sharon Browse, um, who um, I, I wouldn't say she has modeled her career after Martin Luther King, but there's, but maybe, I mean, there's some really strong, he is in some ways, his version of preaching and teaching and living out religion is in some ways the kind of model for the for the, for the rabbinate that, that, that Rabbi Browse has taken on and for the spirit that infuses our whole congregation. Um, so, so I kind of, I landed in a place that's really out, out in the world um, and trying to, to do, uh, Judaism, do Judaism not just in the, the halls of the, of, the, of the Beit Midrash, of the, of the library. Um, but I have to say, with all that said, um, now... Now standing in a community where, where, where Martin Luther King is sort of our, our kind of our inspiration, that I still come at it mostly as a library Jew. That is to say, my, my instinct, even when I look at a figure like Martin Luther King, is to think, well, okay, what texts did he study? Like, what, did he, what, was, his, what was his theology? Not just what did he do in the world, but what, what was his scholarship? What, how, did he, how did he deal with the sacred text, because that's what I've done my whole life, is to think about text, sacred text and, and their interpretations. And um, it turns out that once you start to think about that, once you start to look at that, first of all, Martin Luther King was an incredible scholar um, who really had a very serious relationship to um, the, you know, the Bible, um, but all kinds of theology. He was, he was a very broad thinker, in fact. He was inspired by Gandhi, famously. Um, but, uh, but he had, I, I want to use a kind of a, uh, a, 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 a very kind of like yeshiva phrase. He had some very deep Torah, right, Martin Luther King. Um, he clearly, even in his most famous speeches, we see that they're filled with references to not just the New Testament, but in some ways even more to the Old Testament. I mean, wh why, by the way, why would, uh, would Martin Luther King and the, uh, the African-American tradition um, as a whole refer so strongly to the Old Testament? Why is that such a, a strong connection? Slavery. Slavery, right? Because of the Exodus narrative. So from, from, from the time of the, um, of the American slaves, th that has been a very powerful um, inspiration, right? Uh, let my people go. Right, um, yeah, lots of, of old Negro spirituals referencing um, images, or even when you get to a level of sophistication like Martin Luther King's, even quoting or making direct reference to passages from the Exodus story and then the Hebrew prophets in general. 
Um, so we can start to see as we look at Martin Luther King's speeches, like, oh, that's from our tradition. Oh, that's, that's a Jewish text. Um, and uh, and that's, that in itself is interesting, but not interesting enough to, to, give, to, to do a whole talk on, just to point out where he says certain things. Um, what I think is really interesting is, you know, uh, I Shmoli just, just said, I, I, I've spent uh, um, many years writing about um, Torah commentary, biblical commentary. And so it's kind of natural for me to think about the way that Martin Luther King is not just citing, but interpreting. And like any good interpreter, he's sort of spinning it. He's sort of giving it his own... His own, uh, his own particular explanation, his own particular perush. And so that's what I want to look at with you tonight, is to go back and look at some of these um, incredible speeches that Martin Luther King gave and to see what, passage he, what passages he's referencing and why. Why is he referencing those passages? And more to the point, how? How is he using those texts which are so familiar um, to to students of, 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 of Jewish literature, and, and what do they mean to him, and what do they offer to us? So that's, that's my way of, of introduction. Okay, so um, we're gonna start with uh, the most famous, uh, maybe the most famous speech in American history at this point. I mean, I don't know, that and, uh, that and, uh, and Lincoln's, and, which is exactly, in fact, how he starts. Yeah. 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 I said an explanation. His his commentary or his explanation. His how? What is he? What is? How is he explaining this text? How is? What is he? That's going to be what's interesting to us tonight. Is not just to hear him um, cite these texts, but to try and think about what is he? What's his read on these texts? What is he saying about these texts? Okay. Wait. Hold on. I wanted to give you the Lincoln reference. J.R. <laughs> Martin Luther King, J.R., which is a funny thing. So he's referencing that other great speech, so I just wanted you to hear that, because there's a link there between the, the two epic speeches, and he's doing it deliberately. Um, okay, so... You can see throughout the, so we won't, we're not going to listen to a 17-minute speech, but you can start to see throughout the speech that, uh, that he's beginning to, um, to reference uh, texts from the Hebrew prophets. So uh, the first one we're going to see here in the I Have a Dream speech, um, I have for you uh, on the page, so let's just read it together and then we'll hear him do it. Uh, David, you want to read this for us? We cannot be satisfied as long as a Negro in Mississippi cannot vote and a Negro in New York believes he has nothing for which to vote. No, no, we are not satisfied, and we will not be satisfied until justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. We cannot be satisfied as long as a Negro in Mississippi cannot vote. Oh, this is, yeah, that's right. That, I just wanted to give you an example of, uh, of how, how 
close at hand he has these texts. I mean, obviously, he, he wrote this, but, it, but you, you can see just it flows. It's very natural for him. He's, he's very, it's very ready at, at, at his fingers to quote these texts. But that text is one of two that he cites from our Tanakh, that is to say, our Hebrew Bible, in this speech. And it is, the, it's the less interesting one. And he's not, it's a nice thing to say, right? Poetics. And you might think, well, that's the function of, oh, now I'm like, that's the function of, of citing these texts altogether, is just to lend some flourish, just to lend some rhetorical poetics to what he's saying. But the, but the next text will be much more interesting. Now, as I say that uh, Martin Luther King is, uh, is using these texts in an uninteresting way, I want to dare to say something uh, even more controversial, which is that this speech, this famous, famous speech, is not uninteresting, but it actually is not magnificent at first. Like, he's talking, and if we skipped around, we could hear him talk, and oh, look, he's Martin Luther King. His his C game is far advanced of my A game, okay? Just to listen to him talk is like a great pleasure. But I just want you to take note as we begin to listen to him. I'm not mindful that some of you have come here because you want to be tribulation. Look at those people there. Here. <laughs> Do they look that interesting? I mean, they're respectfully watching. I don't mean to say it was a bad speech, but it's like, it's not. Some of you have come from areas where your quest for freedom left you battered by the storms of persecution. Uses great language. By the winds of police brutality. You have been the veterans of creative suffering. Continue to work with the faith that unearned suffering is redemptive. Go back to Mississippi. Go back to Alabama. Go back to South Carolina. Go back to Georgia. Go back to Louisiana. Go back to the slums and ghettos of our northern cities. Knowing that somehow this situation can and will be changed. Let us not wallow in the valley of despair. I say... Okay. He's been going on now for 12 minutes, and nothing that he has said so far is, it's not that it's not quotable, it's not that it's not good, it's not that it's not profound, but this so far, the first 12 minutes of the speech, it's not what we think of as the greatest speech of all time, or of American time, right? This is not the epic speech, and maybe some of you know this story, but the story um, that I think is pretty well verified, is that it is at this point in the speech where he's sort of, I mean, you can't say he's droning on. It's amazing, it's Martin Luther King, great. But he's sort of like he's doing his speech, and it's nice. And apparently, at this point in the speech, and you can even hear the way he sort of, all of a sudden it sounds like he's about to say something, but then he says something else. Actually, maybe uh, we'll take it a, a, a minute back, but, or a second back. But the story is, that he was giving this speech that he had prepared, and it is okay. And then he, and it's the March on Washington, sort of the great, you know, great, great, you know, famous March on Washington, millions, you know, or a million people there in the audience. 
And from behind him on stage, apparently Mahalia Jackson, sort of great gospel singer who was a dear friend to Martin Luther King, um, an inspiration to him, shouts from the back, tell him about the dream, Martin. Tell him about the dream. And that was apparently something that he, an image that he had been playing with in some of his speeches, here and there, He'd sort of been talking about this dream, and she liked it, and she said, tell him about the dream. And he heard her say that, and he says in an interview later, like, I just heard it, and I thought, like, this, yeah, I, I, this felt right. I should say this now. So if you listen, you can see where he suddenly switches, and he goes off script. And, and you know, I have to say, this is true about Rabbi Browse, too. She's better when she goes, she's even better when she goes, she's like the, one of the great speakers um, of our Jewish age, but she's even better when she goes off script. And that's true for Martin Luther King, too. What we know as the famous I Have a Dream speech was not planned. And, it is in, and that makes it even more impressive that it was in that speech. Now, again, he's not a superhuman. I'm sure he was working this out in various speeches. But it's in that speech that we get the reference to... Um, to this, this incredibly famous passage that we're gonna to analyze together. So let's see, I'm gonna take it just a step back so you can hear where he sort of switches over. Let's see, okay. I go back to Georgia, go back to Louisiana, go back to the slums and ghettos of our northern cities. Knowing that somehow this situation can and will be changed. Let us not wallow in the valley of despair. And then there's a pause. So even though yeah, it's coming. we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. Do you notice the way he said, I say to you, my friends, and then, so even though we face the difficulties, like it seems like there's a switch there. What is he saying to us? He's saying to us, so even that, it, it doesn't, like, and you can tell that something's, he's been prompted and something switches and he says. starting to get into it already. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will they be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the you can hear there, he's like finding his words. I have a dream that one day 
He still hasn't gotten to our reference point, so see if you can hear it when he, when he does. Now we've kind of gotten what we needed, but you got to let it play it out. I mean, this is the best. I mean, uh, if I one day give a, a drusha sermon like that's like one hundredth that good, I mean, I can die, die a happy man. But okay, uh, now we can get into our learning for the evening. But uh, what, was, what was the reference point? To what, what did he say that, that, um, that, that, that referenced Jewish tradition or text? Well, you have it on your pages, so you can cheat. By the way, there are, there are multiple things. Even the phrase, let freedom ring, it comes from Leviticus, right? Vatikrad dror, lechola aretz, that freedom should be called, it's, it's, on, it's on the liberty bell, in fact. So a, a lot of what he's doing is he's participating in a long tradition of Negro spirituals and other American uh, traditions that reference the Hebrew Bible. The, to say the Bible is a big you know, a, a reference point for, for, is, not, is not a surprising thing to say, but in particular, I want us to look at this, and I've, I have it, you, you all have these pages? Mm -hmm. and in particular, I wanted us to, to look at this, uh, this phrase. I have a dream today. Um, 
uh, would you would you read for us um, uh, the next the next section? I have a dream. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted and every hill and mountain shall be made low. The rough places will be made plain and the crooked places will be made straight. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. This is our hope and this is the faith that I go back to the south with. Okay. Um, I would, if this was like a... Uh, Hebrew Bible class, I'd be like, okay, pop quiz, now where is this from? But you can just look down <laughs> just like one inch, and you see that it's from Isaiah. But I looked it up. Um, you know, I mean, I, I found out that he was referencing this. It sounded familiar, and I looked up, like, what are the references in his speech? And I found Amos, and great, Amos is there. Okay, no big deal, very nice. But I looked up the passage in Isaiah, and it's actually a very famous passage within Jewish tradition. Um, it comes from chapter 40 of Isaiah, and chapter 40 actually means quite a bit to, um, to, our, to us, to our tradition. So let's take a look at chapter 40 of Isaiah, and this is sort of what we're going to do tonight, is kind of compare like, the, the original text with what Martin Luther King said, and what exact, how exactly is he using this text. So let's take a look. Um, this, this, uh, this, this has a sort of famous um, opening, Nachamu Nachamu Ami. In fact, there are, there are songs that I could sing. Nachamu, nachamu ami. Like it's a, it's, a, it's a real quotable. All right, so let's, uh, let's read the, the Isaiah. And what I want you to do as we read the Isaiah is to see what is he referencing? Um, what, what, what words exactly is he referencing? And you know, how do those words appear in the text itself? That is to say, what, what is the meaning of those words seem to be in the text itself? Jerry, you want to Jerry? Yep. Yeah, read this first? My people, says your God, speak to the heart of Jerusalem and declare her that her term of service is over, that her son, her sin is forgiven, for she has received at the hand of the Lord double all her sins. A voice rings out clear in the desert, a road for the Lord, forged in the wilderness, path for our God. Let every valley be raised, every hill and every mountain made low. Let the crooked places become straight and the rough places made plain. Glory of the Lord of the Lord shall be revealed, and all the flesh shall see it together, for the Lord himself has spoken. Okay. Um, now, does anyone know why when I read this, I thought, oh my gosh, this is... Does anyone know where we use this? It's not... It's, if, you, if you don't, it's not an obvious and, uh, reference point. But anyone... Good. Beautiful. Great. Um, Stan? Stan. What Stan said, this is... Um, part of what we call the Shiva Dinahamta. Okay, so the explanation is um, Shiva Dinahamta means the seven consolation readings. So exactly as Stan said, after Tisha B'Av, so Tisha B'Av is the great morning day in the Jewish calendar. It takes place sometime during the summer, always right around my birthday. This is kind of a bummer. Um, uh, in, in the middle of August, and we, we mourn the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. And then, what, what's the next major Jewish holiday after Tisha B'Av? Rosh Hashanah. So we don't want to be depressed when we get to Rosh Hashanah. So after the morning of the temple, um, in the Haftarah reading, that is to say, when we read the Torah, we add a reading from the prophets to the reading of the Torah. That's our tradition. There are seven weeks in between Tisha B'Av and Rosh Hashanah, and those seven are the Shiva Nechamta, the seven weeks of consolation that are supposed to make us feel 
kind of more consoled. It's been hard. We've been in the depths in the morning, but we're kind of, we're trying to be comforted by the words of the prophets that things will get better, that we'll come out of this destruction so that we're ready for Rosh Hashanah. And the seven weeks of, uh, of uh, between Tisha B'Av and Rosh Hashanah um, begin, the first reading is this one here with what we call Shabbat Nachamu. You might, that is to say, the Shabbat is even named after this, the first word in this Haftarah. Nachamu means comfort. So comfort my people. Comfort my people. And that, in fact, for me, is the most famous line in this passage. is Nachamu, Nachamu Ami. Right? That, that prophetic repetition. Comfort. Oh, comfort my people. It's beautiful in itself. But that's not the passage that Martin Luther King quotes. What is Martin Luther King using here? Just start calling it out. Verse 4, about every valley be raised. Good, that's where it starts, in verse 4. Every valley raised and every mountain made low. And what else? Make the crooked straight straight, uh, and the rough places will be made plain. And then, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. He's almost quoting exactly, um, although uh, it is... Uh, interesting that you can see he says the rough places made plain um, and the crooked places made straight, right? Which, and it's the opposite. And so you can see, like, it's in there, but it's not like it's a direct quote. It's just in him. Okay, so that's the part that he's quoting. Now, uh, and we have a little bit of reference for what it means in our tradition. Um, so let's start to think out loud together about what is the parallel? What, what is he... What, what's he doing here? Why is he referencing this passage? What does this passage mean? What are the people being comforted from? The destruction, of the temple. The destruction right? And then? Transformation. It transferred all of Jewish life. And then the exile, right? And meanwhile, you know, Isaiah lives during the temple. So Isaiah is, is seeing a future time. Right? That's, that's, the tradition has it that I, Isaiah was seeing that both we would be exiled, but don't worry, in the end, we will be comforted and we will be brought back into the land. Okay. Um, now, why do you think he is using this passage? What is it about the valley being raised and the mountain being made low? What's, what about that imagery works for the, the, the hills go down and the valleys come up? It's an equalizer. Very nice. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's an imagery of things just starting to be equal. So there are some people who are, who are high, and there are some people who are low, but in the end, everybody will be the same. Okay? Okay, so that's, that's, that seems to be um, one of the things that he's doing there. Um, what else is really important for Martin Luther King in this passage? Good. The revelation will, uh, of God will happen and everyone will see it together. And in particular, what language is there that we'll all see it together? Great, we're all equal. All flesh. All, all, flesh. Colors, all, colors. all colors, right? All flesh, all skin colors will be able to see the glory of the Lord equally. Okay? Great. So that's beautiful. That makes sense. That's that's certainly why uh, why Martin Luther King is using this passage and he uses it very well. But now let's start to think about. Um, what I suggested earlier, how Martin Luther King is using, is, so we see a parallel, but there's also like, there are some twists here, okay? Like, 
For example, um, the context um, that is given in Isaiah, speak to the heart of Jerusalem and declare to her that her term of service is over, that her sin is forgiven. For she has received at the hand of the Lord double for all her sins. So what does it mean for, for Martin Luther King to say her term of service is over? Why is that, what's that important phrase? What kind of service has, has Martin Luther King's people um, rendered? Slavery, slavery, slavery right? Um, okay, great. And, um, and um, what, what sin then might he be talking about? What is the sin, the sin that, is, that will be forgiven? What's the sin? Being a slave owner, right? That seems to be, if, if, if I'm giving this speech, at the March on, on Washington, right? If I reference this passage, I'm referencing a passage where a kind of subjugation or service is ending and a sinfulness has been expiated, right? Great, except what does, now let's go back to, to Isaiah. What does Isaiah mean by her term of service is over? What is the, what's the subjugation that the people of Israel are experiencing? Exactly. Conquest and exile, right? One government conquers another. Babylonians come and conquer Israelites, or Romans come and conquer Israelites. Interesting. So there's a little bit of a spin on what the service, the context of like a service ending, you being free again. Right? Not that you've been made slaves, but that you have been conquered by another, by another people. But now here's the real twist. What is the sin that Isaiah is saying will be forgiven? Whose sin? Why were the people exiled? Why are they other? Why have they been? Yeah, our sin, the Israelites' sin. Right? That's the context that Isaiah provides. Isaiah is saying, you will sin, you will you will uh, disobey God's will, and as a consequence, you will be conquered by another people, and you'll go into exile, and then you'll suffer enough, and you'll come back to righteousness, and then your sin will be forgiven, and your service will end. Okay. Martin Luther King knows this passage, is referencing this passage, but doesn't reference that part, right? Because... Because he doesn't want to blame the people. That's right. It doesn't exactly fit, right? The, the uh, black Americans are not um, atoning for a sin that they did, which rendered them slaves to white Americans. That part, it, it sort of fits, but it doesn't all the way fit, right? And, after, and, and by the way, even the parts that he, right, an equalizing, right? The mountains low and the valleys high. What does that mean in the original Isaiah? Original Isaiah is not so concerned with the equality of the Israelites and the Babylonians. Isaiah is saying Babylon will fall and Israel will rise again, right? We will come back to, to our grand stature once we have atoned for our sins. So that's a, that's a real, on the one hand, beautiful language, right? And but that's a spin. That's like a, he's readjusted the terms that Isaiah has, has laid out here, okay? So that, okay, we're, we're gonna do some of this nitty gritty work, um, but, um, but, but 
the, the larger point here is that Martin Luther King is using these passages um, in a very powerful way, and he's using exactly the right passages, but he's using them in such a way that he takes from them what he wants and even kind of reinterprets in them things that aren't exactly there. Um, let me give you just one last example here. Um, all flesh together will recognize the glory of the Lord, right? We already said for, for Martin Luther King, what's the connotation there? That all, all skin colors will equally have access to glory, greatness, God, etc. What is Isaiah's vision of all flesh recognizing the glory of the Lord? Yeah, one day, on that day, all people will recognize that our God is God. Now, <laughs> that's a very different message. Don't get me wrong, Isaiah is a good prophet for Martin Luther King because Isaiah begins um, with some very universalistic imagery, right? Um, um, My house will be a house of prayer for all nations. So it's a great thing to borrow from Isaiah. But then again, what Isaiah means is eventually everyone will come to recognize that God is God, that our God is the God. That's not exactly the message that Martin Luther King wants, right? What Martin Luther King wants is all people, regardless of their flesh, will have glory, right? So you can see that there's like, there's some real perush, there's some real sort of commentary or interpretation, even one might say kind of like um, respectfully, because we all, all rabbis do that, a little ma manipulation of the text to make it like fit exactly the message that he's given. All right, I see some, some, some questions. There's not a reference to Mashiach here in the, in the years to come as opposed to the years here on earth? Where, where do you, where? Well, even be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. You know, I just kept thinking about gem bones, you know, and then. Uh, yeah. And that reference. Yeah, I, okay, so that's great. So one of the things that we, um, that we ought to keep thinking about here. Sarah is your name? Sandra. Sandra, sorry. Um, one of the things that we ought to keep thinking about here is what is Martin Luther King's great vision? Like what is, what's the end goal for, for, for Martin Luther King? Because I think you're right that the end goal for, for Isaiah is some messianic era. So what's Martin Luther King's utopia? What's his messianic era, right? He gives, he gives us a pretty clear vision of it. Here is his is here on earth. And listen, um, we are not uh, we are not earth haters in Jewish tradition. That is to say, we, we believe in life on this earth, and the messianic era is still a, a, a period, an earthly period, um, where some leader will will unite humanity. But the uniting of humanity will be one in which everyone comes to see that our God is God, right? So there's a, there's a kind of a borrowing, but a little bit of a, a twist on even the, the end vision here. So but we'll keep holding that idea in mind. It's like, what is Martin Luther King pointing towards? And what is um, the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible, um, pointing us towards? Okay. Um, okay, so that's, that's one pass. We're going to do two passes tonight. That's the most famous uh, uh, speech that Martin Luther King ever gave. But I have to tell you, it's not my favorite Martin Luther King speech. And uh, we're going to play one more clip. This one's a little shorter. Uh, of my favorite Martin Luther King speech, and not just my favorite Martin Luther King speech because I just think it's heart-stoppingly amazing, but also because I love even more what he does with the text here, okay? And um, here he's not going to quote it, 
But if you are a student of Torah, you immediately know what he's talking about. And the speech, even in the name of the speech, um, you can tell, the speech is called, um, I've been to the mountaintop. Mm -hmm. And I have to give you the context of this speech as well because it's, um, it's, 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 it's heavy. He gave this speech, and apparently uh, it was at the, uh, the Masonic, uh, or the, not the Masonic, but the Mason Baptist Temple in Memphis, Tennessee. And apparently he had like a, a cold and a fever that night, and he wasn't going to give the speech. And he put uh, Ralph Abernathy, um, his sort of right-hand man, to give the speech in his place. And Abernathy apparently started to speak and re- not just start, like, started to interact with the crowd and realize like, the people were going to be very disappointed if it, they came to hear Martin Luther King speak, right? It'd be like, it'd be like uh, Rabbi Browse comes here tonight and it's like, she couldn't make it, and David Kasher's here, like, oh, big disappointment. Um, but you came for David Kasher, so it's fine. Um, but so Ralph Abernathy, he says, uh, he says uh, oh, this is a problem. So he, he gets in touch with Martin Luther King, he's like, you got to come down. So he comes down and he gives this speech. And as I said, it's unbelievable. We're only going to hear two minutes of it, but it's an unbelievable speech. And... Um, and, and then he was assassinated within 20, 24 hours of this speech. And not as he was leaving, but within 20... This is the last speech he ever gave. And that makes what you're about to hear all the more um, poignant and heart-stopping. Um, so uh, listen to this in that context, but also, if you can do two things at once, listen for, like, what is he... What's the, what's the Torah in here? Okay, we'll do this. Say to America... Just be true to what you said on paper. By the way, he's already like at, t- at a 10, right? With, with I Have a Dream, he had to sort of work up, and he's like, ah! <laughs> with a fever. I live in China or even Russia or any totalitarian country. Maybe I could understand some of these illegal injunctions. Maybe I could understand the certain basic amendment privileges because they haven't committed themselves to that over that. But somewhere I read of the freedom of assembly. Somewhere I read of the freedom of speech. Somewhere I read of the freedom of press. Somewhere I read that the greatness of America is the right to protest Land. I may not get there with you, 
I mean, it's like really truly brings tears to my eyes every time I hear it because it's, first of all, so powerful, but also like, it's just crazy that he was saying this within 24 hours of his own death. I mean, he, on some level, he just knew it was coming, but there's also, it feels like there's, there's something more. Um, it's just, it's, I don't, I don't even know what to make of it. But back to the matter at hand. What is he citing? Exactly, exactly. Moses at the end of his life. Now remember, here's the story. Moses leads the people out of Egypt, leads them through the desert, 40 years. And yet, for one big sin, Moses is punished with not being able to go into uh, the land of Israel. I have to say, I, I'm not, I don't think any of us should be comfortable with that. That's <laughs> like still bothers me when I say it out loud. Like, okay, and the sin was... Um, instead of talking to the rock to make it produce water, he struck it out of anger. Or uh, I don't know what the sin was, but actually, I have a whole essay on it. I can center it. Yeah. I, I was wondering if that were, really wasn't the reason at all. Mm. That the reason, at all, the reason that he was denied entry had to do with the fact that he was still part of that slave generation. And so he was going to be the last one because that was why they wandered for 40 years to get those generations of slaves hmm. gone, and he was still, he was the last one. Oh, okay, I, I mean, I, I love that. You're, you're, you're doing the, exactly the work that, that our commentators have been doing for, for ages, which is trying to figure out, like, well, how, what is the reason? Because it can't just be that he struck, right? Like, so, so now we've got Cheryl's commentary, but I, I wrote, when I, I said I wrote an essay on this, and I called it 18 Answers, because I went through a history of Jewish answers, responses to what, wait, what was the sin here? Now we can make it 19. What is the sin? What did he do, what did he do wrong? He's hit the rock and he can't go into the land of Israel. It seems totally unfair. And Moses thinks so too, right? Moses thinks so too. And um, we can see that Moses thinks so um, when we go to um, Parshat um, Vethanan right, the, uh, the, um, the passage in Deuteronomy, where Moses is saying at the beginning of, uh, of, of Deuteronomy um, that he, wa he wants to go into the land. So uh, who, who can um, read this for us? Can we get our, our next reader? Would you read for us? I pleaded with the Lord at that time, saying, O Lord God, you who let your servant see the first works of your greatness in your mighty hand, you whose powerful deeds no God in heaven or on earth can equal. Let me, I pray, cross over and see the good land on the other side of the Jordan, the good mountain and the Lebanon. But the Lord was wrathful with me on your account and would not listen to me. The Lord said to me, enough out of you. Never speak to me in this manner again. Go up to the summit of Pisgah and gaze about to the west, the north, the south and the east. Look at it well, but you shall not go across yonder Jordan. Give Joshua his instructions and imbue him with the strength and courage, for he shall go across the head of this people 
and he shall allot to them the land that you may only see. Okay. Now, I should have done this actually before we read this, because you probably could do it even without this text. What are the parallels? What is, right, we already said, it seems like he's referencing, pretty clear that he's referencing Moses, Moses looking over the promise. So what, what are the parallels? Moses looks over the promised land, what else? He's not going to go, he's not, he's saying that he may not be going in. I may not get there, right, with you, but we as a people will get there, right? It's very powerful. Like he's saying, I'm going to be Moses, I'm not going to cross over into the I mean, the fact that he could say this on the eve of his death. But he's saying, I may not get there, but we as a people will get there, right? And he looks over um, at the promised land. And where does he look over at the promised land from? From a mountaintop, right? So those, those are the parallels. It's pretty clear. He's, he's beautifully referencing this image of Moses looking and seeing and longing to get into that promise. I can see, I can, what he's saying is, I can see the future. I can see where we're headed. I can see where we're going, but, but I might not be able to take you there, but we're going to get there just as the children of Israel got there in their journey from slavery. Beautiful. But the difference is... But the difference is... What's the difference? The difference is that Moses begged God to let him go in, and Martin Luther King is happy to be where he... You know, he, he's glad he got to see it. Beautiful. A, the difference is... If we, I like sort of push you to make some differences between what is the mountaintop and the valley low and the all flesh. Like in the last passage, I really pushed us to see how it's a subtle twist. Here, there's a radical difference, which is that Moses is saying, I pleaded with God. This is not fair. Let me go over into the land. And God says to him, no, you have to stay here. You're going to be punished. But, but Martin Luther King has a totally different, it's all the meaning of the, of the passage but with a very different attitude, right? I, now, he says, I'd like to live a long life, but I'm not concerned about that now, right? What does he say? And I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything, right? That, he puts himself back in Moses' place, but gives Moses, like, some peace, right? It's as if he lends that scene, his parish, his, like, kind of spin or interpretation on it, is he lends that scene a sense of, of, res of resolution, a sense of, I'm at peace with, with this. Yeah. Because he's already seen civil rights workers martyred for, the, for this cause. Yeah. So he's, he's saying... He knows. Yeah. He knows. I, I've watched right. what's happened to others. That's right. And so he has that frame of reference. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. It is different, isn't it? Because... Uh, Moses doesn't have uh, like a bunch of other leaders that he, he doesn't have Medgar Evers. He doesn't have these people who have been killed in the line of duty. Yeah. He's also seen the Civil Rights Act passed. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's the mountain that he's ascended somewhat. Yeah. Because he can see that coming. Yeah. Yeah. Better days ahead. Right. It's amazing. Your two comments together. Like he can see that things are changing and he can also see that he is still in grave danger. Right. Yeah, it's, that is the main twist or spin that he, I mean, and it's what's so powerful about this. I mean, imagine knowing that you could die at any moment and just saying, I'm, I'm happy, right? I, I, I'm not fearing any man, right? I'm not worried about anything. I'm, I'm ready to go. Moses wasn't in that space, right? Moses didn't feel that way. Moses wanted to see the promised land. He wanted to be in the promised land. Right? It wasn't enough for him. Gazing over um, from, from, from the mountain at the promised land from Moses might have been a painful experience. 
It's the thing he wasn't going to get to do, right? For Martin Luther King, being on the mountaintop, that is, that's the heights. I don't care about anything. I can see where we're going. That's enough for me. It's a totally different read on this very strikingly similar imagery. So there's that. There are also, I think, once we've, once we've synced up these two texts, we can also wonder about some other, again, subtler differences, like what is the promised land for Martin Luther King? What is he, you know, what has he seen? And maybe it's as Stan said, he's seeing that the laws are changing, right? The, 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 this, this land that we're in is going to be different. There will be equality in this land. That in itself is a, a parish, a, 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 a switch, a twist, right? Because, because the promised land for the Israelites means a land of their own, not this desert, right? Not this journey, but somewhere else. Whereas Martin Luther King's promised land is in the land, but it's a, it's a change in the society that exists in that land. The same land, but a different reality. I think the other thing that I want to just ask about this passage, and in this way, in some ways, it's Deuteronomy that presents um, the challenge or the twist, which is, um, who is Joshua? You know, like, how, have, who's, who's taking over for Martin Luther King, right? And, and even more, um, even more devastating, perhaps, is to ask, have we gotten to the promised land? Have we gotten there? I, I, don't, I don't see anyone nodding yes. <laughs> right? We, we got a lot, we've gotten a long way, but we're still crossing, right? Like, it, you know, uh, the Israelites wandered the desert for 40 years, and then Moses saw the promised land, and then he died and they all went over, right? Just, just about, he could see it about to happen. What did Martin Luther King see? Did he see it about to happen? Because it's been 40 years since then, and we're still, we're still marching, right? It's still, we're still crossing, right? So there's, so there's something tragic, even, even as Martin Luther King redeems this passage, there's a way in which his version of it is tragic because it is, the, the advantage of Deuteronomy is that, you know, we're almost there. Right? Moses is giving this speech to the Israelites just before they cross over. And he also tells him who's supposed to take over after him. And like you said, there is, we don't know who's. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's part of the, that, you know, um, there, there was just this a big uh, fight over the women's march, right? The women's march was this really powerful thing, which is that, like, you know, you know like, women across the country and their, you know, supporters um, got together and, like, and said, like, this is, you know, we can't tolerate the condition that women suffer under in this, in this country, right? We can't, we can't do this anymore when even the, the highest office in the land is, like, filled with all sorts of demeaning statements. You know, it's a powerful thing. But what happened in the second iteration is, like, well, who's in charge now? And, like, where, you know, who gets to be the voice of the people? And who, who is leading the, peop- the, the, the women's movement at this point, right? And, you know, our, the Jewish community has all kinds of feelings about, about that, right? But everybody has feelings about it. It's like, it's, there's no clear leadership. Like, where, who's taking us forward? Who's helping us out of the, the, the desert that we're in? And so, you know, Martin Luther King, right, in the beginning of, of uh, I Have a Dream is called uh, the moral leader of our time. What a thing. Who's the moral leader of our time? I, I don't know. Like, who, who, like who will, you know, like, 
who claims to be the moral leader of our, like there was a handing over here, right? He gave it to Joshua and Joshua to the elders. And the elders, you know, like there's, a, like there's something that kind of worked in Deuteronomy that, that you know, as, as incredible as Martin Luther King's ability to summon this moment is, like the aftermath of his, of his death and the aftermath of, of this de- tremendous advancements of the civil rights movement led to more struggles and more conflict and more difficulty that we're really still working out. Yeah. Well, in one case in, in Deuteronomy or in the Bible is they're going to see their dream as something physical. They can see it. Mm-hmm. They, can, they will be able to feel it, taste it, live it, and everything. In Martin Luther King's dream, it's just a dream. So his is intangible. Mm-hmm. And That's right. he doesn't know whether it's going to be five years, 10 years, That's right. 40. So it hasn't come yet. Yeah. He can see that they're, they've made progress. Yeah, Whereas yeah. Israel, Israel, Israelites can see it. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And Martin Luther King is doing this incredible thing, which is like evoking all of the promise and the, promise is the word, not just in its poetic sense, but it's an actual promise. God says, I will take the people to the promised land. So if you're working within that paradigm, well, you're definitely going to get there. Right? There's, there's no question about it. And Martin Luther King is saying, I believe that. We will get there just as, and I might not get there, but does he know that in the way that Moses knows it? He doesn't know it, right? Like he's, he's summoning that image, but it's, he's doing it to, in order to create the, the feeling that, that this is possible. People have premonitions. Yeah. Okay, okay. Now that we got to that point, I, I want to tell you one last thing. Uh, Martin Luther, speaking of Martin Luther King's premonitions, I, I read this stuff, and I was like, oh, this is so interesting, and look at the way he's using these passages. And then I realized that, I realized that Deuteronomy uh, chapter 3 is in Parshat, as you see here, Vetchanan, right, which is the second reading in Deuteronomy. I suddenly had this funny feeling, because Vetchanan is, the, is the, the Torah reading that we attach the first of the seven uh, uh, readings of comfort. That, that piece from Isaiah that we read is actually from the Haftarah, the pr- prophetic reading, that we attach to Parshat Ve'etchanan. Well, that's remarkable, I thought. You know, there's a, there's a kind of a sink there, like Nachamu, Nachamu, Ami, comfort my people, is the reading that is attached to I've been to the mountaintop. So then I started thinking, wow, that's interesting. And then, friends, I looked it up. You're not going to believe this, but look down below the line. Um, There's an asterisk there. That asterisk takes us back to the first thing we read, I Have a Dream, which was was given in the March on Washington, August 28th, 1963. And I looked it up. In August 28th, 1963, in the Hebrew calendar is the 8th of Elul, Mm -hmm. right? 5,723. And it's Parshat Kitetze, which is four readings after Parshat Vayetchanan. So if you look, I've listed the seven haftarot of comfort. And it starts with Vayetchanan, which is comfort, comfort my people. And then four weeks later, the reading that the Jewish people are in all over the world, the thing that they are reading from the Torah there is Kitetze, which is smack dab in the middle of the seven weeks of consolation. So when Martin Luther King gives his I have a dream speech and he references Nachamu, Nachamu, comfort, comfort my people, 
He is, he's standing in the moment. Did he know that? I, I don't know. I don't think so, although he was a scholar. He was a, he was a, he was a, a co-religionist to, 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 to Abraham Joshua Heschel. Maybe somebody whispered in his ear. I, but it doesn't seem right because he did it instinctively. He, uh, not, uh, not instinctively, but he did it um, um, spontaneously, right? He was like prompted and then suddenly he erupted with this. And suddenly he's, he's speaking out the words that Jewish people all over the world just read three weeks ago in the middle of this period of consolation that Jewish people are in all over the world. Now, I don't know what to say about that. You said he had a premonition, an intuition. Like, to me, as a, right, most people are not, that's not going to mean that much. But to me, as like, as, as the guy who's, you know, planning services and thinking about the order of the readings in the year, to go back and to see that Martin Luther King is somehow not just referencing the, the seven weeks of comfort, but referencing them in the seven weeks of comfort. The same guy who is evoking the mountaintop the, the, the night before he dies. You know, the best I can say about it is that in the Talmud, in the first tractate of the Talmud, it says that a dream, our dreams are 160th of prophecy. So if that's true, if every dream we have is somehow 160th of prophecy, like somehow you're getting like something that's a little bit like prophecy, but just a 60th, Right? If that's true, then maybe, maybe the dream that Martin Luther King had, maybe a dream of that magnitude is even more. Right? Maybe, maybe this was about as, as close as we could get to a real prophet in our time. So yeah. with that, I'll close. And um, thanks for learning this with me. Uh, yeah, time for, we have time for questions. Could you tell us some of the 18 reasons... Uh, why Moses didn't go to the land. Ah, okay, yeah, sure. Um, okay, well, so uh, one of the reasons, so Moses struck the rock, I'll say it, well, we'll give you three. Um, uh, one of them is that Moses um, uh, hit the rock, which made it seem like um, the word of, of the command of God was not enough to produce water from the rock, so it diminishes the miracle, right? It makes it look like somehow, I don't know, he, he unleashed something, so that's what... Um, uh, the, the, um, the Maharal says that um, he, it's because he lost his cool, and he, that's, that was not befitting a prophet to, like, he got angry, right? Shimunah Amorim, you listen, you rebels, he says before he does it. And that was, the sin wasn't striking the rock at all, it was yelling at, at the people. So this, already we have two versions. One is that he lost his cool, and the other is that he castigated these people for God's people for no good reason. Um, uh, another answer is that um, uh, is that uh, that he did what he did this in front of the people, not not in private. You know, he, he sometimes argues with right. He unleashed his his, uh, his anger in front of the people. Yeah. The people. Um, uh, another answer is that he um, oh that just that he didn't really believe that that it would have worked if he just spoke to the rock. So maybe the problem is his lack of faith. Um, and, and it goes on and on and on there. I, I'll, I can pull it out and start reading answers to you. Uh, but yeah, I'll, 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 if you want, I'll send Shmuley the link to that. They all, they all have to do with that particular...
particular. Yeah, everybody's trying to figure out like what's going on with that particular moment that causes such tremendous. Well, like the the punishment seems out of proportion um, with the with the sin to say the least. So everybody's trying to figure out like, well, what exactly was the problem? What's the what's the thing that that he should have done that he didn't do? Right. Um, well, that's the one that God says God is punishing him for. That, 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 might, that, that might be right as well, that he's, maybe there's something else that he did that, that isn't being accounted for. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, maybe, I don't know, but you, we can, yeah. Um, how do you think Torah is used well and, and used not well and used really poorly in social activism? Mm, such a good question. Uh, the question is, how do you think Torah is used well and not well, um, even really poorly, in service of, of social activism today? today? Um, well, uh, I, th that's such a complicated, uh, you could you know, write a dissertation on that. But I, I will say it this way. I think that it is not, what Martin Luther King is doing here is very Jewish. It is Jewish to interpret the text, to recontextualize, to find little things in them and, and that have new meaning, to give new meaning to the text. I don't have a problem with any of this. And I don't think that it, uh, I think that, um, that it's, pr I don't critique people for um, taking texts out of their context or, um, or finding a new, a new meaning to the text. I think that, um, I think that it is used poorly when it is um, simplistic. Like what Martin Luther King is doing with these texts is quite sophisticated, right? Whereas like to take like one phrase, one, you know, um, Salam Elohim, we're made in the image of God. That's a powerful thing to say. But if that's like the only, those two words are the only justification you have for human rights, right? That's just, that to me seems like, well, that's just not good Torah. It might be, it might be true, but I just like, as a student of Torah, I'm not, I'm not particularly impressed in the way that I am with this mountaintop speech. So that's, that's what I would say is like, it's not wrong to, to give your spin on a text, to recontextualize a text, but it's like, it's unimpressive to me to like have your, your two word talking point that's like, that really shows that you are not steeped in a tradition. You're just like, you just know some of the highlights and you, and you sort of like slap it on to wherever it feels convenient. That's what I would say. As a, as a real Torah lover, that's what I would say. <laughs> um, other, other questions or thoughts? No? Okay, one more. <laughs> uh, maybe you can just tell, it's a little tangential, but maybe you can tell us for just two minutes about what, about Yukar. Ah, uh, yeah. And why that model is unique. Um, and, and what's happening there that's different from most classical synagogues that we know of? Yeah, I mean, um, I think that Ikar is, you know, the only, I went looking for a place to, as I said, to sort of like live out this Jewish learning that I had done in the world. And I have to say, I, I think Ikar is about the only place that I could imagine doing it. It's just, it's the right fit for me and, 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 and the reason that it's right fit for me is because I think Carr is really interested in both changing the world and, and changing Judaism even, reinventing all the time, but in a way that is totally steeped in and grounded in tradition. 
So you know, there are, there are plenty of, of congregations that are great at tradition and plenty of congregations that are great at innovation, but I think one of the, one of the things I love about ICAR is that we're constantly working to do both and to like live in the tension between the two. Um, and so we, you know, we, we, all, our, all of our food is kosher, and we, um, we, 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 we say the Musaf prayer, you know, which is like, literally means the extra prayer, right? We like try to hew pretty closely to Jewish tradition, um, but we're also um, experimenting with music. And, um, and I think it's also true that, um, that I, you know, you asked me about good social justice Torah. And I think that Rabbi Brous really, um, really has it. I mean, she is really expert in, um, she is a progressive, right? And she is, um, she is an activist, um, but she really grounds her message in, as Martin Luther King did, in the story of the Exodus, right? Like I was, I think I was telling um, you, Rabbi Shmueli, earlier that there's a debate in general in Jewish life over whether there should be politics from the pulpit. You may have an opinion on that um, one way or another, but it's a debate that sort of it has been playing out especially recently now that it seems like everything's so politicized. And, um, and, you know, there are voices that say no politics from the pulpit, it tarnishes the Torah. And I have to say, like, I get that. I get, what, like, when you go to, to shul and you, like, you, you feel like you hear, like, a, you know, a political rallying speech, it's, it's annoying. It's like, didn't I come to hear Torah? What's so great about um, Rabbi Brous's Torah is that it is, her response to that has been, are you kidding me? You want to tell me that... Um, that a founding narrative that involves the uprising of an oppressed people against a tyrannical dictator is not an inherently political document. But, as, so that's a good retort, but it's also a way of saying like, we are grounding our, our social justice, our activism in Jewish tradition. Like this is, we, it's, this isn't just a, a set of talking points that we got from Bernie Sanders. Like this is, who maybe is grounded in Jewish tradition also in some, some um, attenuated way. But this is like, this is who we are. This is what we, we fight for these things because we're Jews, because we're rooted in Jewish tradition. And I think like, like our music is borrowing from the past but pushing towards the future, I think so too our justice work is like deeply rooted in the past and pushing towards the future. And I think a lot of what Ikar is, is like really, um, really, really embracing a deep love for for, for Jewish tradition, but also trying to look for the places that we still need to evolve and change and work towards um, a better future. So that's, that's why I feel uh, very lucky to be, to be in that place. How do you uh, equate your orthodox training with Ikar uh, and Ikar? Yeah, yeah, I mean, um, that was, the, that was the, the question I got the most when I, when I when I, when I got the job, in fact, I had a, there was a, a newspaper article about like, me getting the job, and they were like, oh, we're going to send you a list of questions. But you can't tell that the list of questions is like, just no, nothing. There was, it was like, orthodox. What's the deal with orthodoxy? Um, so I, you know, I want to say, I want to answer that question in, in various, various ways. I, I, I think that, um, look, it's probably true that I, um, I, it would be hard to, to call me orthodox at this point, to whatever extent that orthodoxy has come to mean things like um, 
a resistance to egalitarianism, right? Like that's an example, like men and women having the same sort of roles and responsibilities in shul. That's an example of a place where over the course of my journey, I just kind of came to a place where I was like, no, I, I think that that needs to change. I think that that's not, um, I, am, I am orthodox in the sense that I feel that uh, a fidelity to Jewish law and that I think that you can't just change Jewish law whenever it's convenient. But I do think that Jewish law does evolve and that sometimes it evolves because of a pressing um, uh, new reality, new moral concern. And I think like feminism has, has, has shifted our reality and I'm, I'm, I'm well convinced by that. And I think, by the way, that's happening in orthodoxy as well. I'm not so far from it at this point. But it so happens that I personally made enough sort of an internal religious adjust, adjustments over the course of, remember, I'd been out of rabbinical school for 10 years, and I was very much in the orthodox world when I was in it. But, you know, there were certain things that made it easier for me to, to go to Ikar. By the way, there are things at Ikar that, um, that are not as easy for me. I won't list them here because I don't want to make it sound like I'm critiquing Ikar. I'm not. There are things there that are, 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 are a stretch for my comfort zone. But I also sort of think that, and this is in some ways the, the main answer, that I'm not not orthodox so much as I'm not denominational. Like, I just see myself as a religious Jew, you know? Like, and so maybe my version of being religious Jew is a little different from another orthodox person, a little different from a conservative person, but I, the, the movements are these incredible... Um, vehicles that have taken us basically through the, the last century of American Judaism, but I don't know that they are, they're cert they, they certainly can't be turned into um, idols that we have to like worship and pledge fidelity to. They, they serve a function and then they're done. And I don't, I'm not saying the movements are done, but I'm not, I, what, what I like most about Ikar is that it's not that it's not orthodox, but it's also that it's not anything. It's just a, an attempt to, to live out Judaism, religious, this beautiful religion that we've inherited. And, um, and I want, I, I guess I, I want that freedom to be, um, to, to be not just liberated from the past, but to be um, free to, to live out the, um, the, 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 the deepest kind of re religiosity that I can. So, um, so that's, that's, a, that's, I guess, how I would, would answer the question is, is not so, so much that I'm anti, but just that I, I wanna, there are things that I believe in, like God and Torah and the people of Israel. You know, you that's, those are my beliefs. You go back 150 years before, 200 years before there were movements. Right, exactly. Orthodoxy is, you'll, yeah, you'll hear from Orthodox people like, oh, once upon a time there was, there was only Orthodox Judaism. Well, that's not true. Once upon a time there, um, there, was no there were no denominations, and then Reform Judaism came along, the first denomination, and then Orthodoxy came along as a response to Conservative Judaism, and then Conservative Judaism came along as a way of splitting the difference, and that's great, and that had to be, because they were all reckoning with a thing called modernity that was very confusing, and we tried to figure out, like, well, how do we reconstitute Jewish life? But um, I'm not saying they've run their course. They clearly haven't. Like, they, they have built the foundational institutions that like, make up our schooling and our camps and our synagogues and all that. But it is interesting that things are starting to happen outside of the movements. And I'm just, um, I'm just happy to be a part of that, to be like, in this kind of this new phase of exploration. Because th what I just said is true. The movements are trying to figure out, like, what does it mean to continue Judaism now that 
um, we are living in a modern world where Jews can participate fully in political society and where our whole notion of truth and, you know, and, 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 and uh, like scientific truth and, and moral truth like are evolving so rapidly. What does it mean to, to hold on to Judaism? We all want to do that. Reformed Jews want to do that. Conservative Jews want to do that. Orthodox Jews want to do that. And they've all tried to do that and we're going to keep trying things, if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. What are your thoughts in um, taking the, the movements that exist right now within Judaism and, to me, their ability to divide us into Jewish people? Mm. I think my thoughts are just that we've always been divided as, as a people. Right? This just like this just goes all the way back. I mean, I think you know. <laughs> it's like, uh, I quoted Isaiah, Ki beti bet oh, my, my house will be a house of prayer for all people. And like, the, the, inspir the inspiration of that is that like, Jews and non-Jews will come together. Like, it would be enough if Jews and Jews could come together and worship God together, right? Um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, they say that the destruction of the temple, of the second temple, um, was because of sinat chinam, because of just internal hatred. So, you know, this is just, it's another one of our, our sacred traditions to be at odds with each other. And, um, and there's, there's, that, there's not, it's, that's not all bad, right? Like the, the, the Mishnah distinguishes between a debate for the sake of heaven and a debate that's not for the sake of heaven, right? Sometimes we tear each other apart just to tear each other apart. And sometimes we're working out real things. Like it's a real question what we should do with Jewish law and how fast it should move. Right, like, it, it, like it may, it may be that some of the movements are moving way too fast. Right, maybe that some of them are moving way too slowly. That those are real questions that we really need to work out. But some of it is just like, is just hatred. Right, it's just, and it's hatred um, not just between orthodoxy and reform, but within orthodoxy, within reform. It's just like, and that doesn't, that that doesn't. Again, when it be, becomes about defending your movement, well then I think you've lost the thread, right? Because God didn't give us movements, right? God gave us a Torah, you know? Right. Yeah, yeah, maybe there's something about the zeitgeist, yeah. One more question, yeah. I'm interested in the things like call or mission menu or the kitchen or even DJ, which is a little different than walking that actually has a building. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. These are sort of non-building communities that come to, in the sense of outreach, you know, that have a, a strong focus on coming to where their, their community, which is usually younger, mm -hmm. where their community is. And it, it's, it's exceedingly powerful because it's outreach that the other movements have not been able to really be as successful with. But it only works when you have enough people that potentially you can, you can draw in. You know, so I don't know if it would work in the middle of a smaller, a small community, you know, that doesn't have the number yeah, of, yeah. of Jews. Let me, let me respond to that. I think it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an astute observation. Let me respond um, and maybe close um, with something that William James said in the Varieties of Religious Experience, which has just felt to me like immediately one of the truest things I'd ever read. He says, this is the way it works. Somebody or a group of people get, have a moment of, 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 of revelation. And they just, they, they're inspired. They see something different, something other people aren't seeing, and they're set on fire. They're just like, they, they, they're, they're ecstatic. They, they are filled with, 
with this new religious spirit, and they have to break free from an old model, and they just have to create something different. And so they do, and they gather people around, and, and, they, and they share with them, because that's what you do when you, have like a, when you have a vision. You share it with people. You want people to, uh, to borrow from another church, to hear the good word, right? Um, so that happens. And then the people get together, and they, they love what they have, so they start, you know, kind of building some framework for it, you know? Like, let's, let's get a building so that we can worship together, and where, how are we going to educate our children? And they begin to build institutions, and sooner or later, they forget about the, the, the inspiration, and they become attached to the institution, and the institution becomes kind of dead, and then... Sooner or later, someone has a vision and an inspiration. It just works like that, which means like that's okay. It's natural. It's the way it's supposed to be. And it's just like there will always be formulations and reformulations. And you know what? Like we are in some ways, Ikar is like at the cutting edge. And in some ways, like well, now we're actually raising money to build a building now. And I don't mean that that's the end of Ikar. Ikar should live and be well for hundreds of years. But you know, probably not because something else will come along and say, and that's that's good. That's the way we want it to be. I want someone to be um, to to overturn everything I've done in a hundred years because that means that person will be filled with the same sort of passion and excitement that I'm filled with. And if someone is just droning on quoting the words of David Kasher in a hundred years, then like that will be a tragedy because like I'm excited, but I don't see everything. You know, like I mean, <laughs> I don't see I don't I don't see hardly anything. I uh, you know, but. But you know there'll be a new civil rights leader. There'll be a new there'll be a new Jewish leader. There'll be like that's just that's just the way it works. I think. And I think William James was right about that. All right, wonderful learning with you tonight. Thanks so much. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetemidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.